Lord, we thank you for this new day, and we thank you for another opportunity to read Romans 6 and to talk about it and to um, try to understand what this meant, what this means, and how it should change our life. So hear our prayer and give us your peace. So we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, maybe today we'll start with the Eugene Peterson um, translation, and we'll read through the whole chapter to get a sense of it. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's a pretty big piece. That question energizes this. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We've talked about that quite a bit over the past few weeks. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's the goal, living a new life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And again, the goal here. Um, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Um, that we may live a new life. That's the goal and that we no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live longer. Um, we will also live with him. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay. Count yourselves, that's critical. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now here's an imperative. This is a command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So we have instrument of wickedness, contrasted with instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Good morning, Edie. What then? Shall we sin because we are not, not under the law, um, not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So here in verse 15, we really return to the main argument of the chapter. 
Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Noticing again, when you offer yourself. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's that word again. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. There's that word again. I'm using an example from everyday, from everyday life because of your human limitations. What's his example from everyday life? Slavery. Um, something not so much an example from everyday life for us. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now you offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, there's that word again, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from, control, from the control of righteousness. There's that word righteousness again. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you, were, you, are, you are now ashamed of? Those result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very big verse. All right. Let's gain some perspective on how this chapter fits into the whole book. Let's go all the way back to, come on, you can do it. There we go. Chapters one, two, and three. You remember what, at the end of this book, we're going to have a real good grasp on perspective on Romans. Do you remember, really starts 1, 18 and following. What's the main thrust of chapter 1 from 18 to the end of the chapter? Who's he talking about? The Greeks. Chapter 1 has those famous verses about um, basically about the frustrating life of the Greeks. Chapter 2 is about the Jews. Now, what's... I, I began talking about law number one and law number two. Law number one is immediate. And law number two is mediated. Law number one in chapter one, Paul, Paul talks about the fact that 
the life of the Greeks was a giving themselves over to basically a downward spiral into death. Now, and it talked about the fact that Greeks have a knowledge of the world. You can ascertain a knowledge of the world from general revelation. Okay? And we, we were calling that the immediate law. And I used a number of examples about um, these are the Greeks and these are the Jews. So what kinds of immediate law might the Greeks, and when he means Greeks, he means the Gentiles, what kinds of things can they figure out about what is better and what is worse in the world? Their conscience, good. Um, conscience is not foolproof. Um, you can, over time, sort of destroy your conscience, but um, conscience is a guide for morality. Um, you look across civilizations, you will find laws against murder, against theft, against adultery. Things like this. And now we used media and immediate and mediated with respect to, let's say, the stove. The immediate law with respect to the stove is what? You get burned. So pain will instruct you. A mediated law would be a good mother who says to the child, don't touch the stove or you'll get burned. And the, the mother might even slap the child, slap the child's hand, give a little bit of momentary sting so that more permanent harm is done to the child's hand. So you have the immediate law and the mediated law. All right. Now, if you look in the chapter, one of the things that we noted again and again is this word righteousness. Here in after verse 12, which is another paragraph, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. We're probably going to have to talk about that. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument. The word in Greek is more like a weapon of righteous, of wickedness. And the, 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 the word in Greek for wickedness is, go to verse 12 here. Um, Become an inter or chap person. There it is. And when you notice the this Greek root word, um, justice, righteousness, and then um, to sin. Here's dikaiosune. Notice again, ah is the opposite. Ah dikaios. Um, um, is it works in English too with some words. Ah is the opposite. So unrighteousness versus righteousness, let's say. Okay. Um, and when we talked about righteousness, we talked about this both in the Sunday school class and at 11 o'clock, 
What is righteousness? We talked about the cop. What's the difference between the corrupt cop and the good cop? Okay. Now, righteousness is the thing that makes the good cop good. The good cop has righteousness. The corrupt cop does not. And so what you see throughout this chapter is this concern. Do not let any part of yourself um, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer to God um, as those who have been bought from death to life, to offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. And again, a little bit later, um, whether, um, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. There it is again. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, he's making an example in this chapter about slavery. And he's saying, if you are a slave to wickedness, you obey wickedness. If you are a slave to righteousness, you obey righteousness. And you can see how righteousness is that thing inside you which moves you in the right direction. Okay? So you have righteousness and you have wickedness. And his argument is that wickedness leads to death and righteousness leads to life. Um, And God is the God of life. And when you talk about that, you talk about God leading, God is the author of life. Now we've, we've played this interesting, we've played this interesting argument at the beginning of the chapter with respect to baptism and death and life. And so all that's, all that is brought together here. Okay. So you have mediated and immediate. Now the, Paul would argue that the Greeks know something about this life and death. And you might use the word virtue. That's a word that more comes from one we're a little bit more familiar with. Virtue leads to life. What would we, how would we, um, how, uh, what kind of illustration would we give of that? What would be an example of virtuous living and living without virtue? And one leading to life and one leading to death. Okay. Okay. And honoring your marriage vows, caring for your children. If you don't honor your marriage vows, how do things go at home? Usually not very well. If you don't care well for your children, your children suffer. Your relationship with your children suffer. Your relationship with your spouse suffers. You see that there is in the world sort of... um, There's a virtuous circle sometimes, virtuous cycle, and a vicious cycle. And one goes up, and we use up because this orientation that we have, up sort of like heaven, 
and one goes down, which is down to into the ground, into the grave, into Sheol, into Hades. And so we have all of this symbolism that works through here. And, and Paul is making the argument that in Christ, we grow in righteousness and we become slaves to righteousness. And the other direction is you become slaves to, at the end of verse 12, you see these evil desires. And now I haven't checked the Greek word, but I think I can almost guess. Um, there it is, epithumia. Um, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And we've talked about epithumia before. Epithumia, epi is a intensifier, which means thumia is basically desire, and epithumia is over-desire. Okay, so it's a good thing to desire food. If you over-desire food, what do you get? Okay, you get gluttony, you get addiction. Food should make you healthy. Over-desire of food makes you unhealthy, okay? Same thing with wine. Little wine is a good thing. A little bit of wine is fine. Over-desire of wine leads you down a road to death. Um, sex. Sex is a good thing. Desire for sex is fine. It can lead into life. Desire for, for sex can, in fact, lead into more life, children. Over-desire for sex leads to destruction. And so epithumia is this kind of desire that Paul is saying is an example of the way this works. All right. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law. And we've talked about this a bit. We're going to have to continue to talk about this odd relationship between Sin and law. Let's see if I can pull up last week's lesson. Last week we talked about this, this relationship with law and sin. If you can see, I repeat these things. You have law number one, law number two, mediated. Grace, rebellion, yes, yeah, sin. Um, part of sin comes through, let's say, desire and epi-desire. Now, now what, is our, what is our definition of sin? There are actually more than one. One definition of sin is missing the mark. Um, Over-desire for food can lead to obesity. The mark for food would be the proper amount and proper kinds of food in order to lead to an optimal life, your body being healthy. You can miss the mark with food by eating the wrong kinds of food or too much food. Um, that's sort of one level of sin. And, and desire, epithumia, is a good example of 
one of the ways that we get out of whack with respect to sin. But there's another kind of sin, and, and law can be helpful with respect to dealing with epithumia. So a law that, now again, we have immediate and mediated, and the child has very little wisdom because the child is young. And now we live in this world which has all sorts of distortions, including, let's say, sugar. And sugar and milk and flour can make a wonderful thing that we call cake and frosting. Oh, that's lovely. So the mediated law, the mother says to the child, I want you to eat your meat and your vegetables. And after you eat these portions of your meal, you may have some cake. All right? You may have one piece of cake. Why does the mother set up a law like this? Okay. So you could call the mother's instruction of the child training in righteousness. And we had the Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. The main body of the Sermon on the Mount deals with this question of righteousness. And we like to sort of think about righteousness all the way as something that only God can give us. Yeah. But God gives us many good things mediated through other good things. And so what the mother is doing with the child in order to train the child how to eat is the mother is training the child in righteousness so that this internalized governor comes into the child and the child will say, cake is good, but other kinds of food are good too, and so we will have a balance in our meal. The problem being that if the child only eats cake, the child is going to have a problem and it's going to be mark missing. Now, we're because of the complexities of language, we're a little bit hesitant to call poor diet sin, but it definitely is a form of sin in that it's missing the mark. Okay, So that's one area of sin. And the law is really good at helping us with mark missing if we have a good relationship with the law. If the child has a good relationship with the mother, the child will learn I'm going to eat my meat, I'm going to eat my vegetables, and at the end of the meal, I'll have a little bit of cake, and that's absolutely fine with respect to the whole meal. There's another element of sin, which is rebellion, which is different from mark missing. And maybe the kid is now a teenager, and mom has to take a business trip, and dad isn't around. So the kid wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to eat cake three meals a day. Now, that might not even feel good to the kid, but there's something about law-breaking that incites something in our heart and gives us, I think this is, this is part of the thrill of our, that, that you have in the garden. You have this rebellion. It, it's it, the child, the teenager sort of feels, sort of has a heady experience of rebellion. I don't need my no saying mother anymore. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so even though we use sin to cover both mark missing and rebellion, we can understand that there's something different between them. You can do a fair amount of mark missing without rebellion, just out of ignorance. You don't know. And so there's good food and there's cake. Cake tastes good. It's really sort of artificial food that's sort of overwhelmed with fat and sugar, which feed certain pleasure centers of our body, so we gravitate to it. But then there's rebellion, which says, there's something I really resent my mother for, and so I'm going to eat cake. And it can be sort of a cowardly rebellion. You don't have to get up in your mother's face and yell at her or any of those things. You can just sort of quietly rebel against mom by eating the cake. And, and people play these games all the time. So, so that gives us a sense of sin. Um, and, and this is kind of what Paul, so sin, well, let's, let's, keep, let's keep going with that. So there's a sense of, this isn't, this isn't today. That's why I don't often, even with the starting line, um, sin, sort of like, how can we talk about this? Rebellion. Talk about rebellion. Why does rebellion feel good? Okay, we're in charge, or we think we are. Is there something that is good in us that rebellion is leveraging in order to flourish? Yes. So when we think about, let's say, the created order, you have God makes humanity, and we have nature, nature being the animal kingdom, the natural order. When you, when you look at the created order that you find in Genesis, God gives us dominion. God places the man and the woman in a garden. And for that gardening to happen, humanity is given a degree of authority and power over the natural order. And that's what a governor, uh, what a gardener does, right? Because a gardener, again, we can use all kinds of things. And have you ever seen undomesticated apples? Have you heard about them? They're supposed to be these tiny little fruit in the steppes of Asia that people began to say, there's, there's something about that apple. I think if we start playing around with it, 
certain qualities of the apple can be accentuated so that we can begin to benefit from its accentuation. So we've done this with apples, we've done this with corn, we've done this with wheat. Um, genetically, apparently, all domesticated dogs come from wolves. And if you see what we've done with dogs, you have tiny little lap dogs that make lovely companions. You have big guard dogs. Um, you have all these different dogs. What we've done is we've taken nature and we've said, hmm, we can, we can have dominion over this nature and we can fine tune it so that certain excellencies emerge from it. And so when you look at you know, the tiny little apples that are the ancestral apples. And then you go to Bel Air and you look at these things that were growing in Washington State. It's like, wow, I sure would rather eat one of those Washington State apples than one of those natural apples. If you look at corn before we domesticated it, you know, it's this tiny little thing. You can sort of recognize what it looks like. But now we have this sweet corn. We have feed corn. We've taken all of these things because God gave us dominion over nature in order to bring out of nature the glory that was potential within it. And you can look at cake as such. You have sugarcane, and this is very much a product of globalization. You have sugarcane, which comes from, um, you know, South uh, Islands in the Pacific, the Pacific South, which we domesticated and put out all over the world. So you have sugar cane, you have milk. Well, how, where do we get milk? Well, we took these animals and we domesticated them into cattle. And then we figured out how to, well, you have a calf and well, the cow can produce more milk than just the calf needs. And so now suddenly we have milk available. And well, people notice that there's this plant that has these little grains on it. And if they sort of began breeding in order to accentuate the grains. The grains get bigger and bigger. So pretty soon we have flour and we have milk and we have, and we discovered yeast and we sort of domesticated that and we domesticated sugar. And now suddenly we have cake and cake is glorious. And so within us, God gave us the capacity to take nature and have dominion over her and develop glory out of nature that you won't necessarily find walking through a forest. That doesn't mean there isn't glory in the forest. It just means we have this capacity. Now, rebellion is related to that capacity because in, in, instead of using this capacity in alignment with what God desires, we take this capacity in alignment with what we desire against God. And so that's why thumia, which is desire, is a good thing. We, we discovered sugarcane. We discovered um, domesticating the cow. We discovered domesticating wheat. We discovered all of this, and our desire has brought good things. But the epi-desire, the over-desire, has led us into rebellion, and we take good things and we make them destructive. So there's, there's the story. Now, rebellion 
just like many other, many other things can lead to what my friend John Verveke calls reciprocal narrowing. A good example of reciprocal narrowing is epithumia with respect to alcohol. Now, some people drink out, like myself, I, I, there's something about alcohol, whenever I can detect it in small quantities, and when I taste it, it's like, oh, this, is, this is horrible. I can't stand alcohol, personally. People wonder, Paul, why don't you drink? I drink because I can't stand alcohol. I don't know. My mother's the same way. My father wasn't. My father liked a glass of wine. Me? Can't stand it. Other people, alcohol is such a funny thing. Other people, alcohol is normally sort of a depressant, but alcohol hits some people and it's also, it, it, it gives them, it's both sort of a depressant and it makes them happy. <laughs> and so, well, alcohol can be a good thing. Bible talks quite favorably about alcohol in the book of Proverbs. But an over-desire for alcohol can lead to reciprocal narrowing in your life. And that can happen quickly or that can happen slowly, usually dependent on what other things are going on in your life. They've done some really interesting studies with rats where if you have a rat in a healthy rat environment and you give the rat some cocaine, the rat will like the cocaine because the cocaine sort of lights up your pleasure centers in the mind. But a rat in a fairly healthy environment, given a little bit of cocaine, will enjoy just a little bit of cocaine. Put a rat in an environment that is impoverished. There's not enough things that keep rats interested. Rats are pretty smart little animals. And so you put a rat in an impoverished rat environment, that rat will become a cocaine addict. And you see this with children. Put a child in a resource-poor environment, the child is much more susceptible to addictions of various kinds. And my friend John Verveke calls this reciprocal narrowing because pretty soon, oh, alcohol's a good thing. Cake's a good thing. Cocaine? I'm not sure cocaine's a good thing, but um, these are good things. You start, but what happens when all you start, you can use sex. Sex is a good thing. Suddenly, all you think about is alcohol. All you think about is cake. All you think about is sex. And pretty soon, your whole life is all about eating or drinking alcohol or sex. Exactly. And so here, this is why Paul keeps talking about being a slave to sin. Now, again, the sin might start off as Mark missing, and it devolves into rebellion, and it devolves into reciprocal narrowing. And you very quickly get this downward cycle. And, and this, this, again, is part of how we are as human beings. We are agents, and we use our agency. And what happens with this reciprocal narrowing is your agency is spent in the search for alcohol or the search for sex. 
or the search for cake or the search for um, domination or, or one of these other things. And, and, you know, we see it all the time. And suddenly a person, whereas your agency should be properly spent on a whole range of things, such as relationships, personal care, um, uh, doing for others. I mean, when you look at actually what a good life looks like, it's, it's, it's usually a series of a number of things which need to be maintained in order that overall, even larger things can be achieved, usually in community. And so when you see someone who doesn't take any care of themselves, they don't bathe, they don't eat, they don't take care of their health, they don't take care of their finances, they're unable to maintain relationships. I mean, when you begin looking at life this way, you realize, wow, life is, a human life well-lived is actually a rather complex thing. And there can be a certain amount of collapse and disorder in some of these categories and still sort of maintain things. But a human life is rather a, a complex thing. Reciprocal narrowing takes over, and now suddenly they can't maintain their health. All their relationships are shot. They can't hold down a job. And, and once these dominoes start to fall, the rest of life then sort of quickly collapses. Slaves to sin, Paul says, leads to death. But yet the last verse in the chapter, the wages of sin is death. Now, fortunately for human beings, we're pretty durable and it can take some people a long time to sort of collapse in. So I can think about my friend Daniel, who um, I've been watching. I've been watching him die for 12 years. And I'm amazed at how he hasn't managed to die over these last 12 years. There have been episodes where he's come pretty close. But I've watched sort of rallying to sort of beat back the drugs and the alcohol and the bipolar and all of that for a while and then sloughing back into it. It's back and forth, back and forth. But the wages of sin, the wages of Mark missing is death. And the wages of rebellion is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Okay. So my friend John Verveke, who is this cognitive scientist, he talks about reciprocal narrowing. And I think reciprocal narrowing is a really nice image of addiction because your life becomes more and more obsessed with something that is actually, alcohol is a fine thing, but a human being is a greater thing than alcohol. And so a human being should master alcohol. But when alcohol becomes the master of a human being, they stop becoming a human being and there's this reciprocal narrowing of life. So, so my friend John said, if there's such a thing as reciprocal narrowing, might there also, which is basically the direction down, might there also be something like Reciprocal broadening. And, and again, you see this 
in, let's say, the life of an addict who is struggling. And, you know, AA is full of stories like this. And, you know, I asked Daniel one day, because um, he was talking about, he was talking about cocaine and then crack, because he used to run some crack houses. So when was the first time you took cocaine? I was 13. I thought, wow, that's young. And I asked him some of the incidences around it. He was pretty lucid that day. He had just gotten out of the hospital. Excuse me, when he's most lucid. Then I asked him, when's the first time you took alcohol? I was 12. He had a Mormon background where, of course, alcohol is forbidden. I was 12. It was on a camping trip. An older sibling gave him some alcohol. And, you know, he struggles with bipolar. And one of the things that I think probably happened, even today, he uses beer as a way to manage his mood. His, he said, hey, I talked to a doctor. I said, am I manic or I am, am I depressed? And the doctor said, you're both at the same time. And it's true. So beer sort of slows him down from his mania and anesthetizes him from the pain of his depression, both at the same time. So he's always trying to just keep a low level of beer in his system. And, and you know, he actually knows a tremendous amount about this. And he sort of has it wired in for the most part, but it doesn't overall really work. But you see this, someone goes down reciprocal narrowing and then they get sober, and then what happens? Well, now suddenly, it's, and the thing about AA is it's not just sobriety. It's not just stopping drinking. That's one of the key things about AA. Because very quickly, when you look at all of these elements of their life, okay, so you have to stop drinking. All right. What else do you have to start doing? Well, I've got to make amends. Well, why? Because that resentment has been eating at me and the guilt has been eating at me. And whether or not the other people, whether or not I can actually restore things in my life, whether or not the other people are actually going to forgive me, I need a degree of forgiveness in myself. So if I do the right thing and try to make amends with people, unless it would hurt them, if I try to make amends with people, now suddenly I can begin to get my life back in order. And you watch this with a recovering alcoholic. Pretty soon, in the context of a meeting, they start to learn better relationships with other human beings. And then they start to learn a little better money management. And then maybe they get into a, an intimate relationship that is sort of working. And then they begin to hold down a job. And they can hold down the job over a long period of time. And then they get some... Now, now they're... They got into a mortgage and they're paying on a house and, and maybe they can start a family. And, and you begin to see this reciprocal broadening that goes. And you can see that this person who, you know, I used to love talking to Neil Hand about these stories because um, Neil was full of these stories. This person who, like in Neil's case, was, um, you know, basically drunk in the streets of Alaska. Now suddenly, could keep his insurance business. 
and hold down his job and go to church and become an elder and lead a youth group and bit by bit by bit by bit and, and bless the world with opera and classical music. And, and this was reciprocal broadening. Now, the question is, all the way down to this end verse, the wages of sin is death. Reciprocal narrowing leads to death. And here's the question. But the gift of God, reciprocal broadening, is eternal life. Now, we might have a little category here. We might say, here's death. Here's life as we know it, and here's eternal life. Now, it's really interesting that Paul here uses eternal life. You don't find him use that much in his letters. He mostly says, in Christ, which for Paul is roughly comparable to eternal life. John. Gospel of John, Epistles of John, Book of Revelation. Gospel of John especially uses eternal life a lot. The Synoptic Gospels use kingdom. And they're all roughly equivalent. And so the idea here is that, well, if sin leads to death, righteousness leads to eternal life. And if we undergo the drama of death, so you have dying leads to death, and rising, resurrection leads to eternal life. We began the chapter talking about this is the drama. What's interesting is that we die to something in order to be raised to the other. All right? So back to where we started. Chapter 1. The Greeks. They've got the immediate law. So they're subject to they're subject to God's judgment. And death is reigning. You have the Jews. They were given the mediated law. At Sinai, God taught them like a mother teaches a child. But we all know, even though odds are good, your your children the odds of your children, they didn't have anything like statistics in the ancient world. Having a good mother and a good father, especially a good father, you look at incarceration rates with respect to fatherhood, it's shocking. Especially boys, because men are incarcerated at a rate of nine to one to women. Boys that are only raised by mothers are far more likely to wind up in prison than boys who are only raised by fathers. Fathers teach boys something that impacts rates of incarceration and crime that mothers sort of miss. 
That's why, again, statistically, I know many wonderful men who, Curtis Ernest, he's a great example. His mama raised him and she raised him well. So that's why he was so grateful to his mother. Um, but odds are, if you've got a good mother and a good father, your odds of reciprocal broadening in life are better than if you don't. But there's plenty of people who are terrible people who are raised by both parents, okay? So we know that. Paul basically runs that with respect to Greeks and Jews and says, the Jews were given something, the Mosaic Code. They were giving the presence of God. They were giving all of these advantages, but they themselves didn't reach their potential. Now, and he comes to that determination in chapter 3, where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? Now, remember, sin can be just marked missing, or it can be rebellion. Rebellion's worse. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he basically says, the Jews have outperformed the Greeks, but the Jews still haven't lived up to their potential. The Greeks generally underperform the Jews, but you can find Greeks who excel over some Jews who don't. It's just like you can find someone who comes out of a terrible situation in which they should be a slave to sin and reciprocal narrowing who somehow excels, and you can find someone who was born into a great situation and goes down into the depths of depravity. Okay? Chapter 4, we have Abraham. and the question of righteousness. And it's righteousness and observances. Paul, um, if you remember, Paul looks at the early chapters of Genesis and says, Abraham responds to God even before he is given the sign of circumcision. In other words, we're not saved by observances, we're saved by grace. And he works that in chapter 5. And now we get to, in chapter 5, he deals with this question of law and notes that law can really help with mark missing, but there's something about law that can really sort of initiate rebellion. In other words, law itself is insufficient. And that might help us understand why, in the case of the Jews, even though they, generally speaking, outperform the Greeks, you're better off having a good mother and father and being raised in a good home rather than raised in a neglectful home. Even the Jews have not fully attained what their promises were. And anybody will tell you that. You can listen to someone like Dennis Prager, who will complain about his own people almost Almost every Jew I know complains about his own people. And then you get to chapter, and so Paul in chapter 5 goes into this dynamic of law and rebellion. And now into chapter 6 starts talking about baptism that we talked about in the last few weeks and this passage of death 
and rising again. And now he's talking about this, this dynamic of slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness. And he's connecting it with this whole process of the Greeks and the Jews. Because I've learned a lot about, there's a lot I didn't know about how the Jews conceptualize their relationship between themselves and the outside world. For example, I'm talking about you, Joe. I'm talking about you, Jacob. Um, whether or not Jews need to, whether or not Gentiles need to keep the Mosaic law. One of the most interesting things I've discovered is that my friend talks about Noahide religion. Well, it makes perfect sense because you have Moses with respect to the Jews, and you have Noah, remember, at the end of the flood, there's a new covenant given where meat eating is allowed. It's, and it's, it's a much narrower, less specific covenant than what Moses gives with those 613 rules. And so then my friend says, oh, Gentiles should be Noahides. They should follow the, the covenant of Noah. And, and that makes perfect sense when you look at the Torah. And if that's basically your Bible, and the rest of the Old Testament is exposition on the Torah, then what Gentiles should do is follow the covenant of Noah, whereas Jews follow the covenant of Moses. Paul, with the Romans, is making an argument that you'll notice that Paul still sort of keeps a separate covenant between Jews and Gentiles. You notice that in Galatians, right? What happens in Galatians? There's some Jews who say to the Gentiles, if you really want to get in good, follow this code. Some might say, hmm, that's, is there any relationship between that and Calvin's third use of the law? It's a good question. But Paul says to the Gentiles, no. Don't go back and become slaves to the Mosaic Code. Why? Doesn't, didn't work. That's the argument he makes in Romans. But what he says is that now with the Spirit in Christ, you have something where you no longer need the Mosaic Code in order to satisfy God's covenant demands. There's a spirit that's coming. And so what he's saying is basically that in Christ, you can have reciprocal broadening that goes up to eternal life apart from the special relationship he had with the Jews. Which is really interesting given my, my friend and his idea of his, um, his Noah covenant. but. When Paul deals with the Gentiles, he says, and he says this to the Romans too, you in a sense 
So you have Noah, you have Abraham, and you have Moses. So my friend Jacob sort of points back to Noah. Paul goes all the way back to Abraham and God's grace and invitation to Abraham and says, you now have that through Christ. And you have the Spirit through Christ that leads you into relationship with God and leads you into the reciprocal broadening that Moses, the Mosaic Code, was intended to deliver for the Jews. This is really complex. And, and this kind of helps explain, there's a lot of funny things happening, for example, in the book of, in the book of Acts, when you get towards the end, where Paul goes back to Jerusalem in order to keep a vow. And the people in Jerusalem are really angry with Paul because he thinks they think he's sneaking Gentiles into the temple, which he it isn't. But this gets into all of these strange little details about, let's say, circumcision, where Paul circumcises Timothy. But why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Right. But why could Paul justify circumcising Timothy? Do you remember? Yes. Because Paul's because Timothy's mother was a Jew. And for the Jews, the Jewish line comes through the mother. That's why my friend Jacob says I'm not a Jew. Because my Jewish line comes through my father's. But Timothy's mother was a Jew. And so Paul circumcises Timothy. But Paul tells the Gentiles, if you undergo circumcision, you are basically cut off from Christ. We're like, what? We circumcise babies regularly. In the church, we don't worry about circumcised men being cut off from Christ because they're circumcision, because we're also reading Paul when he says, circumcision and non-circumcision are of no account. What matters is, and this is where he leans back into the Old Testament, a circumcised heart. Well, what is a circumcised heart? Oh, a circumcised heart is a heart that is submitted to God in Christ, submitted to this, the new life of the Spirit. So this whole argument in this chapter about slaves and free, Paul is saying that sin is like a slave master. And sin may use the epithumia over desires, or it may use rebellion, but that way leads to death, and we can see that in the Gentile world. What we see in Christ is now through death, through baptism and resurrection, new life in Christ. Now, I haven't really gotten into today Paul's interesting argument about death and sin. I'm just going to touch on it briefly, and we're out of time. Here's a question. Can Adolf Hitler sin anymore? No. Why? He's dead. Uh, one of the most notorious sinners 
In modern history, death has ended its sin. Now, when we talk about sin again, we can talk about missing the mark. We can talk about rebellion. We can also talk about corruption. Now, the sins of Adolf Hitler may continue to corrupt. The sins of Adolf Hitler certainly were born out of rebellion and mark missing. But Adolf Hitler as an agent can no longer sin. Paul makes a very interesting argument here that death is sort of the terminal condition of sin. Sin leads to death. And then it's done. The weird thing about life is that it's anti-entropic. The moment any of us dies, it's a really weird thing. All of that, all that machinery in our body that's keeping us alive right now, our heart pumping, our brain working, all of this stuff right now is keeping us alive. When we're wounded, we heal. We're always on this margin of decay and life going back and forth, back and forth. Our skin cells are dying, but new skin cells are rising inside of us. When we die, what happens? All that stops. And it's a really strange thing when you think about it. Now, what this is where the resurrection of Jesus really is foundational because again and again and again in the Gospels, they point to the fact that Jesus was dead. Dead. And we know that's a one-way street. Then he's alive. And Paul is saying, when we go through death, sin reaches its terminal place. When you're raised into life, it no longer has you. And we'll, we'll close it there for now because we're out of time. But this then has all sorts of ramifications in terms of how we should live, and that's his argument. We should live according to life, reciprocal broadening, not according to sin, reciprocal narrowing unto death. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing argument that Paul gives here. And he continues, continues to admonish us because we are all sort of in the gray lands, the shadow lands of living and dying. And we would love to be free of sin. But our rebellious hearts aren't quite sure we trust God enough for that. And we, in that sense, don't live out the death of Christ sufficiently to live into the life of Christ. So, Lord, as you continue to work on us as we live, may we grow in life and die to sin. And may we anticipate the point at which the reciprocal broadening will continue into new life. Hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus.
Amen.